Hello, this is Congressman Jim Clyburn, and I would like to welcome you to my podcast, Clyburn Chronicles. I have always been a lover of history. I see this platform as a way to connect history with the politics of today. This is so important because as Judge Santiano once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Each episode, my guest and I will have a conversation about the lessons of the past, the politics of the present, and how we must learn from those experiences to help shape the future. Thank you for taking time to listen, and welcome to Clyburn Chronicles. This is Congressman Jim Clyburn, and welcome to another edition of Clyburn Chronicles. Today, uh, we are very pleased to have as our guest, uh, Representative-elect Corey Bush. Corey uh, is an American politician, a registered nurse, a pastor, an activist from St. Louis, Missouri. She recently won her election in November, making her the representative-elect for Missouri's first congressional district. And she has become the first African-American woman uh, to serve in the United States House of Representatives from Missouri. Her interest in politics began after the 2014 protests and unrest in Ferguson, Missouri, where she worked as a triage nurse and organizer. Now, a lot of people have recognized Ms. Bush, and I want to name just a few. Uh, she has received the 2015 Women of Courage Award from the Emmett Till Legacy Foundation, the 2016 Deluxe Magazine Power Award, and the 2018 Community Activist Award from the Missouri Association of Black Ministers. Gazelle Magazine named her one of the top 50 women of St. Louis and the St. Louis Coalition of Human Rights honored her as an unsung human rights hero in 2017. And so I'm very pleased to have her with me today uh, and to share with you a little bit of what uh, it's like uh, growing up uh, in St. Louis being a part of what I call the Ferguson effort, uh, which I was pleased uh, to be a part of along with other members of the Congressional Black Caucus when we went uh, to Ferguson, Missouri uh, after uh, the incident there uh, that I will let her uh, talk about. So welcome uh, Ms. Bush uh, and share uh, with our listeners whatever else you may want them to know about you that I have not uh, uh, done a good job uh, of uh, filling in. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for this invite and this opportunity. Um, it's good to be able to speak with you again um, uh, with Plyburn. Uh, you know, uh, 
just looking at how far we've come uh, just it just since, and I, I mean, we speaking of um, the people, my team and um, everyone, just since we first started to run in 2018 and now being here and to be able to be on the podcast with you is um, truly extraordinary. So, you know, thank you. Uh, yeah, so, you know, growing up in the St. Louis area, for those that don't know, you know, St. Louis is like a lot of other cities, you know, um, you know, we do have the high poverty, we do have the high crime. St. Louis fluctuates oftentimes between number one and number two for homicides, you know, every year. Um, right now we're at a point, we haven't seen this type of, uh, this murder rate since um, before 1993, you know, where we are right now. Um, we are, uh, you know, we are an area where our black maternal, black maternal mortality rate is uh, like four to one in some areas and our black uh, infant mortality rate is six to one. We have environmental racism uh, in our community and just a lot like what happens around the country. Uh, and so um, I grew up the daughter of a politician. My dad's been in politics most of my life. And but one thing that I saw was that someone who gave his heart to the community received a lot of darts back. Like it was just a lot of pain and struggle that he went through just trying to serve. Um, and I just remember as a child though, my dad being a politician, as soon as he stepped outside of his neighborhood, you know, my dad was pulled over by the police so much. I remember as a kid going to church, it was like every Sunday on the way to church, my dad was pulled over by the police. And I used to just think like, I don't want my dad to take me to the church anymore because he he's gonna get pulled over. And I felt like he's just such a horrible driver. Like I didn't understand that it wasn't because he was necessarily a horrible driver, that it was something else at play. Um, but because we were, uh, we he was in politics in our small municipality, we didn't have that same problem. Um, and then just as I got older, you know, um, you know I had children, uh, I was a low wage worker for a long time. Um, and so because being a low wage worker, what happens? It messes with your credit. You don't have health insurance, all of these things. And so I ended up living that type of a life where I was just, it was just struggle, a lot of struggle. I went through domestic violence. I went through sexual assault. Um, I, and it was just a lot. Um, and I ended up getting to a place to where um, I needed help. And I couldn't figure out why I was still spinning my wheels. Like, why was it every time I felt like I was getting closer to getting out of this place of despair that I felt I was in, living out of a car with my two babies, like all of that, like, how do, how do I get out of this place? It's not like I'm a bad person. Like, what is wrong? Somebody help me. And I'll never forget somebody helping me get out of that position. And then I realized I have to give that back. And so I started doing that. And it was, so I went to, ended up getting into nursing school and so many things. I became, I went into ministry, became a pastor, opened a church. Um, but then when Michael Brown was murdered, that's when everything changed. Before that, I was working with the unhoused population. I was on the ground with the unhoused, two in the morning, three in the morning, you know, 10 at night, even during the day, um, regardless if it was hot or cold, I was working to end human trafficking in my community. That's what, that was the work that I was doing before Michael Brown was murdered. Um, but then once he was murdered, I decided to just go to the streets to see what I could do. I'm clergy. I can go and pray with people. I'm a nurse. I can be a medic. And that's when everything changed. Well, I think, uh, thank you so much for that. I think that uh, most of our listeners remember the murder of Michael Brown. And uh, not just uh, 
uh, what occurred uh, at the moment, but what occurred uh, after the moment. Um, the thing that really set me off uh, was that body staying in the street all yeah. of that long time. I forgot now how what long, but that's what got to me more than anything else. Yes. Um, the killing was horrible. Yes. Um, I've watched the incident in the store uh, before. Mm -hmm. What got to me was the body lying in the street. Yeah. And that was the responsibility of local authorities. Yes. And that was callous. That was callous to, to a point that I cannot describe. And I still can't get over that to this day. So uh, I suspect that when we came, uh, when I first uh, saw you, I don't know if there was a formal meeting. Uh, I don't know if it was formal or not, but I remember uh, sitting around the table, uh, talking uh, to folks. And now out of that, you will come to Congress. Uh, another participant in those meetings, now the mayor, <laughs> of Ferguson. Um, uh, I remember there was one African-American gentleman that was on the town council uh, of Ferguson. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, tell us about the makeup of the uh, of Ferguson now. What's, what's going on there uh, politically after this great awakening is yeah. what I would like to call it. Yeah, so um, Mayor Ella Jones, uh, you know, she's mayor now, um, first black woman mayor um, of the city of Ferguson. Uh, so she's been elected. One of the, I think the young man that you're talking about that was um, on the, the council, uh, the Ferguson City Council, he is now our, um, uh, the DA, the, the prosecuting attorney for St. Louis County. Uh, so that was, that's an amazing thing. Um, he's really doing a lot of work to really, really help in this area. Uh, also, the we have a new, so we don't have the same city manager. We don't have the same uh, police chief. The There was this uh, nationwide call for a police chief. Um, and now we have a police chief. It, we, it's, we've taken a few turns, but right now we have a police chief who has decided, he's made it his work to, I want to talk to the activists. I want to be with the protesters. When things are going on, we're coming outside. The, the police come outside and they stand on the line. <laughs> they stand on their own front line with us, you know. Now, sometimes it doesn't happen that way, but it's not what it what it was back in 2014. So they have tried to do a lot of work. We're not where we need to be, but it's better than where we were. Well, thank you for that. You know, um, uh, the young uh, prosecutor, I remember that was the first breakthrough. Uh, I remember yes. that night uh, yes. sitting up watching the returns. We knew... Uh, he was running and we were, uh, when I say we, I'm talking about members of the Congressional Black Caucus, we were watching it very closely. And we sat up that night, waiting, uh, way in the morning, because no, y'all running a little behind us in time. Uh, and so we had to stay up a little late, waiting on those returns. And I cannot tell you what a joyful feeling it was uh, when he had defeated a long time in coming. Yes, yes. And, uh, yes. That was just a big, big deal with yes. so many of us. Uh, that's when the dam was broken. Uh, and uh, when I think about recent events, everybody is talking about George Floyd and 
he should be talked about. Uh, we've named our new uh, justice in policing uh, legislation in his honor. Yes. Uh, but I'm looking forward to your coming here uh, because uh, we need to do something in Michael Brown's honor. Yes. Uh, because really, um, it is his incident, the events around that killing uh, that led to the investigation right. uh, of the police department. Those patterns and practices. Yeah. Uh, this new Justice in Policing Act needs to have a very strong Michael Brown amendment to it, yeah. dealing with patterns and practices. That's the kind of thing I want us to do. And I would love to see, uh, or just hear from you uh, on, on, on that, because it, it was a pattern of practice investigation of the Obama administration coming into Ferguson, uh, doing that. Uh, we just got to do more of that. Yes, yes, we do. I am so, you know, appreciative <laughs> to you for, for thinking, um, thinking this way on that. And yes, Michael Brown, you know, you know, we have to do something. I would love to work on a, a, a Mike Brown amendment um, to the Justice and Policing Act. Um, I, you know, when you when you brought up his body laying on the street for four and a half hours, he was 18 years old, somebody's baby. My son is older than that right now. My daughter is older than that right now. I can't imagine if it was my child. His mother got to watch him laying on that street. And not only was he laying on the street, he was uncovered, you know? Absolutely. Um, and when I was doing grief and trauma work out there on the street in that same apartment complex where he was murdered, um, his, I was talking to, to you, you know, and I had this, this three-year-old uh, and I went up to the, to the child and I said, his mom was like, you know, he hasn't been, he hasn't been sleeping. And so I, it had been two days. And so I said, I talked to him and I said, well, have you, you know, uh, how are you sleeping? Did you sleep okay last night? And he was like, no. And I said, well, did you, I said, what did you eat today? And he said, I don't want to eat. And I said, well, what'd you eat last night? And he said, I don't want to eat. I was just trying to see if he was trauma, if, if it was trauma. Um, and he said, no, I don't want to go over. I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to eat and, and I don't want to go to school anymore. And I said, why don't you want to go to school? And he said, because that's where they killed Mike Mike right there. He pointed to where the body lay because he could see it from his window at his, at his apartment, the body laying out there for those four and a half hours. And so this, this three-year-old knew enough to know he didn't even want to go to school. He hadn't been sleeping. He hadn't been eating. The, the effect of this on our communities has been long. Um, we, you know, when I think about even now, we do not have in, the, in, in this area where Michael Brown was murdered, uh, and, and let me just say, you know, uh, the surrounding area. St. Louis City, which is just outside of Ferguson, for six years in a row, from 2010 to 2016, we had double the rate of police shootings than any other city in America. From 2013 to 2016, we have been number one for police murder per capita in the country, six years running strong. That is why, and when I think about Missouri, 
Missouri, you know, we have in 2015, black drivers were more, 70%, black drivers were more likely to be at a rate of 70%, more likely to be pulled over by police than white motorists in 2015. Now, well, in 2019, that number went up from 70% to 95%. Black drivers are 95% more likely to be pulled over, you know? And so we have to get something done. And I'll tell you this uh, with Clyburn, what didn't happen in Missouri, all over the country, things were happening, but what didn't happen in Missouri was something that would help people like us that was out there on the street saying, hey, we're only out here because we're trying to save lives. What we ended up getting with Clyburn was a blue light. Lives Matter law. That's what we got. And so we have to do something in honor of Mike Brown to, like you said, to deal with these practices. I don't believe that it's okay to shoot first. I don't believe that it's okay to kill people and then come back and say, oops, you know, I'm, you know, we made a mistake and now we're going to give money. Money is not going to bring back, it's not going to bring those bodies back. Those peoples are people. Right. Absolutely. And I think this is so important uh, for you to bring uh, that kind of uh, experience to uh, our caucus meetings and not just, I don't mean just the Congressional Black Caucus, I'm talking about the full uh, Democratic Caucus. Uh, people need to know uh, what those experiences, the story about that little three-year-old, uh, that people who've not had those experiences uh, will not understand it. And I think that you uh, have an added responsibility, not just to represent uh, the folks uh, of your uh, first congressional district, uh, but to translate and interpret yes. for people in other congressional districts, other 434 congressional districts around the country. Uh, because I always say, we are but what our experiences allow us to be. Uh, and that is what's gonna be so important uh, in this work going forward. So I know that you have some dreams and aspirations about what kind of congressperson you wanna be. Uh, share with our listeners uh, how you see your role uh, after uh, January 3rd, I guess is when we <laughs> open the new Congress. Uh, you'll be sworn in that day. Uh, that will be, that'll be a different pulpit for you that Sunday. It uh, will. <laughs> yeah, it's a different pulpit, it, it truly. Tell us a little bit about what, you, what your dreams and aspirations are. Sure. Uh, so one thing that I plan to do is continue to do what you just said, um, bringing that lived experience, um, uh, using that to inform policy. And, uh, and I'm not afraid of being vulnerable for my people. So, you know, in talking about some of the things that I've gone through, you know, talking about what happened in Ferguson that people don't really talk a whole lot about, talking about the trauma that so many activists are living with, you know, like when we, when we think about what happened, we're talking about people who didn't know each other the day before Michael Brown was murdered and people who come from all different walks of life. Some were unemployed before they started protesting. Some were working jobs, some were students, some were, you know, just different walks of life, different backgrounds. 
Um, and so some of those, some of us still are in those positions. And so we have people who've, who've lost livelihoods, people who um, lost, lost jobs, lost their homes. Who helps with that? Um, so just bringing that lived experience, bringing, you know, I talked about being a survivor, you know, uh, um, when we talk about policy, are we talking about, you know, when we talk about this type of policy, you know, I remember going through a situation with um, a very recent sexual assault. And I remember the judge telling me, I kept crying out to the judge, why can't I get justice? Why can't this, why, why won't this happen? And the judge said to me, well, Corey, um, victim, victims and perpetrators have the same, um, have the same rights. So that's why you're not getting justice. And I never did. Um, and so just addressing it from the standpoint of like, I've been through this and these are the holes. That's what I, that's what I plan to use. Um, you know, when I was unhoused, making sure that when we talk about legislation that has to do with people who um, don't have four walls to live in, are we, use, are we putting together legislation that builds the whole person? Oh, you know, um, you know, I can't just walk up and hand somebody some money and say, oh, this is gonna change your life you know, because they still can't even walk into McDonald's to use the restroom, you know, because they look disheveled or they might have a smell or, you know, and so how are we addressing the whole person? When we talk about COVID-19 relief, how, if we give, if we give a vaccine to a person who's unhoused, what happens if they have a reaction? Will they be able to go to a hospital? You know, are they going to get kicked out? Like, so those are the things. That's what I want to use to um, walking in these doors. I'm going to be a politivist in the doors. The political, the activist side of me, that says, drive it, drive it, you know, use what you have, you know, use what you have, use you and bring that to the table. And then the politician side that can help get things done and work with everybody. You know, uh, uh, here in your comments, they remind me so much of that um, uh, conversation I had with my dad uh, when I made the decision not to go to the seminary. When I left home uh, to go off to school, uh, my father, uh, who was the pastor, um, and I often talk uh, about me following him into the ministry. Um, and of course, uh, when I got down to South Carolina State, I thought I was going to be there uh, for four years and going on to the seminary. Uh, in my junior year, uh, when I got caught up into the quote-unquote movement, um, uh, about the third, second or third time I got out of jail, uh, I went home to tell my dad that I had changed my mind and I was not going to the cemetery, uh, I mean, to the seminary. Uh, he said to me on that time, he said, well, son, I suspect the world would much rather see a sermon than to hear one. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and that stuck with me uh, even to this day. And so mm -hmm. though uh, on January 3rd, when you take the oath of office, uh, it may not be, uh, people may not be hearing a sermon. Uh, but from that moment on, uh, people will see in you a sermon. And the question uh, then is, will it be a good sermon uh, or, or not so good sermon? You know, I often uh, hear people uh, talk about how good the preacher was. Uh, and they say, well, what did they preach about? Uh, I, I don't remember, but it was good. Right. Uh, so uh, we want to make sure uh, that your service is not just good, but is memorable. Yes, yes. People must know. You know, old state senator told me one time, 
He said, now son, the next time you run for office, I want you to uh, remember three things. When you go and ask people to vote for you, you tell them what you're gonna do. When you get elected, by God, you do it. Mm -hmm. And then you go back to them and tell them that you're done. Mm -hmm. okay. So that to me uh, is advice that I always pass on. Uh, let's uh, talk a little bit uh, about this new administration and what uh, you expect or what you would like to see uh, coming from Biden and Harris. It's gonna be historic. Mm -hmm. uh, this will be the first time in the history of this country uh, that a woman, and in this instance, a, it's gonna be a woman of color. Yes. Uh, uh, who will be a, the vice president of these United States as a woman of color and the mother of a woman. Yes. Uh, tell me us a little bit about what that feels like to you. You know, it feels like my daughter, uh, who is not, you know, politically astute. My daughter who watches a lot of, uh, you know, she watches YouTube videos and, you know, she's a fashionista type kid. Um, for her to see, because breaking through all the noise, she'll still get to see who the vice president is. She has seen who the vice president will be. So it won't be far from her to think that this is something that she could do or the people around her. It won't be far from her to feel like this is regular. Like that's the thing we need for it to feel like this is regular, like this is okay. Um, you know, not like I have to fight, but I have to fight all of these forces to be able to have this. This belongs to people like me. And I feel like that is, that is where we are. Um, and I'm so proud of that because she gets to see something different. I never even, I'm, I'll be honest, I never even imagined um, a woman of color vice president. I, I, now I did imagine a woman of color president, but I never even imagined a woman of color vice president just because I, it, you know, it was just like, you know, the thing that you really don't think you'll ever see, like think on that, you know? And so I never even thought about a, a vice president um, that looks like Kamala Harris, you know? So my daughter gets to see that and, and, and all of the, these other young women. I tell you, I have so many young girls, even small girls, like six years old, come up to me. They're so just happy to see me in this position and happy to see her, see Kamala Harris, you know, in that position. And so we're hoping as far as working with them. So I will say, um, I received a call from the Biden transition team of maybe about a month ago, maybe a little more, um, about a month ago, yeah. Um, they reached out to me just saying, hey, we wanna be available. You know, is there anything that you need from us? Anything we can do for you? And it, it was actually, it was when the, uh, the uh, press release went out, went out about the, ta the COVID task force. And so I read the names and saw who the people were and so when I talked to the um, transition team, I said, hey, the, there is not one nurse listed. We need a nurse on the transition team because nurses are the ones that are out, that are taking care of the patients the most. We're on that front line. We're the ones going into the room. A lot of times with COVID right now, doctors aren't going in the room. They call you on the phone. And I know because I was in the hospital twice, uh, you know, with COVID. So um, I know what happened. The nurses are in the room. So we need a nurse at the, we need nurses at the table. And so what happened, 
you know, it turns out that they put ended up putting a nurse on the COVID task, COVID-19 task force. So that's how I plan to, you know, continue to work with them. I want to see them do the things like you just said, what that state senator told you. You ran on this, now do it, and then go back and tell the people that you did it. Well, the same thing. I want them, they ran on some things that will definitely help our communities right now, especially the COVID-19 help. But then also, um, you know, that having that police, uh, that task force that deals with police, you know, in the first 100 days, we want to see that. Also, dealing with environmental uh, injustice, we need to see, um, we need to see work uh, happening with the climate crisis right now. This affects black and brown communities first. You know, we got to save our people from, from death. And, you know, when you talk about what type of congressperson I want to be, you know, for me, it goes back to loving humanity. With Clyburn, it, it, with Clyburn, it's all about loving people. Like that is just who I am through and through. I don't care what you did. I don't care if you're incarcerated, if you sleep on the street, who you, who, who you, you love, none of that matters to me. Do you have a quality of life? where you can live and, 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 and give into this community to help build us. That's what I care about. I care about doing the most for the people in our communities who have the least because I'm that person. I've had the least. Well, that's great. You know, um, uh, I wrote not long ago about uh, what um, uh, kickstarted your uh, career, uh, political career that is, of course you were uh, already had a career as a nurse, um, and that was kick-started my uh, uh, political career. Now, I did not, um, uh, you know, I protested a whole lot, uh, but protesting was a part of the process for me. Uh, kicked off back in 1960 uh, when those students at um, uh, up there at uh, North Carolina A&T. Uh, set in. Uh, we followed uh, a few weeks later at South Carolina State. Uh, you uh, kickstarted your career protesting as well. Uh, now, uh, when we look at uh, when I was protesting, and now while you were protesting, uh, have you ever thought about uh, what might be different uh, of 1960? <laughs> and uh, uh, let's just say 2000, let's see, 2015? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that's a long time. Yeah. Uh, uh, what's that, 55 years? Ooh. I, I'm going to do math real well. I'm a history it's, it's, guy. It's 55. But I'm, that's 55 years. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, when I think about uh, John Lewis walking across the Edmund Feathers Bridge in 1965, uh, 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 that was 50 years ago. We just celebrated the 50th anniversary of that. Um, uh, that's two generations. Yes. Uh, have you ever thought about the differences then and now? I have. I have. Um, well, one is we have people who are still alive, because it was only two generations, that we're able to Thank talk you. to. Thank you for that. You know, right. Well, you know, no, I mean, you know, because it, it's where it's very public and you are able to be, that you are accessible. That's what I feel is, is a little different. You know, Dr. Angela Davis has been such a supporter and so wonderful to me, you know, in the past. Um, so I'm able to reach out to people like her and others. 
that have done work all across, you know, all across this country, former Black Panthers and so many others. Um, so that has been helpful. Um, uh, talking with people that are part of SCLC and so, and just, just that has been helpful. Um, one thing that I know that is different is the media. Media and um, how everything is like really in the forefront now. Things are being filmed, you know, as they happen. That I think has helped this movement. I, I remember um, the so in Ferguson, the very first, the very like first few months, um, the tear gas that they used on us and still use on us, even recently when I was uh, protesting for George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. That tear gas, you know, I used to think that tear gas came out of uh, like a tank and it just like went into the air. And if you were around, you were tear gas. I didn't realize there was a person that, you know, that 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 had like this gun looking thing and they put they would, you know, tear gas you. They pointed at you and, um, you know, and so um, I think that that is something that is different, just the way that they use the munitions. So the way that they're using the tear gas, the way they use the noise munitions, the way that um, that we have uh, the surveillance. So I know that you all had heavily heavy surveillance, but technology has changed a little bit since then. Um, and so now they know us when we go to the store two miles away. They still they still follow us there. Um, they know us. So it's 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 so some of those things. Um, when I was stumped by the police. I'll never forget, um, the police threw me up into the air and I didn't know what was happening. I'm talking to the police saying, hey, I'm trying to help this woman who's having a heart attack. And and um, anyway, they grabbed me and they threw me in the air and I just saw the stars coming towards my face. And then the ground, when I hit the ground, they stomped me so much and um, and tear gassed me, you know, and the woman that I thought was, that we thought was having a heart attack. Um, but there is video. You know, so it's like, so that is something that's a little different because it's people that we don't have to just rely on media to be able to tell these stories. You know, uh, as you uh, uh, talk about that, I remember uh, it was right after uh, the Michael Brown uh, when I made some public comments and caught a little hell for it uh, when I said, to young people, uh, calling on my experience growing up in the postage. I said, keep your devices charged and focused. Now, a lot of people give me a hard time for saying that, but I meant that because where would we be today if that young lady who I've uh, encouraged a few groups to honor, did not have that device, her device focused on George Floyd right. and what was happening to him. That changed everything. Yes. All of us knew about these kinds of incidents. We knew they were uh, occurring. We knew and supported Black Lives Matter. We got very little support for it until that young lady who was, I understand, a teenager who would not move. She kept her device focused on yes. that internet and caught every minute of it. Every minute. That changed everything. 
And so you're right. Uh, the media have changed things dramatically. Uh, and uh, it has changed things uh, for the good and uh, for the bad. And I think that what we have to do is uh, as protesters, and I, I'm still a protester, you know, uh, John Lewis, we, we had a sit-in, you may remember, right here on the floor of the house. Uh, it violated the quorum of the house. Uh, we were threatened with, with all kinds of sanctions. Uh, I'm still waiting on the sanction, uh, but you know, these things are important for us to do sometimes uh, because of Martin Luther King Jr. You know, I was in the meeting uh, the night that um, uh, we had our big disagreement with Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, this may surprise a lot of people, uh, but it was the weekend of March, I'm sorry, of October 15, 1960. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. had never been to jail up until that point. Uh, he talked about disobeying unjust laws and going to jail for it, but he had never been to jail. Mm -hmm. And we brought that to his attention and we said to him on that evening, uh, you just can't preach it. You got to live it. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was after that weekend that Martin Luther King Jr. went to jail for the first time uh, down there in Georgia. And it changed the 1960 election. In 1960, this surprises a lot of people, the vast majority of the black voters in this country were voting for Richard Nixon until that weekend. And then King went to jail. Uh, and Richard Nixon chastised Henry Cabot Lodge uh, for expressing sympathy for, uh, for the incident. Uh, but John F. Kennedy called King's wife Coretta, and that was made public. And it changed the dynamics of that race. And in three weeks, it is what made John F. Kennedy president uh, of the United States rather than Richard Nixon. Now, a lot of people don't know about that, but that's what happened. I didn't and know. So it's because of the media. When the word got out, it changed things. So the media can change things for the better. Mm -hmm. and, but we have to discern, be discerning when it comes to this. Because, uh, and I want to share this with my listeners and, and with you. Uh, when Joe Biden told me that he was going to uh, uh, nominate uh, Vilsack uh, to uh, be Secretary of Agriculture again, um, uh, the issue that came to my mind and to everybody's was Shirley Sherrod. Now, I know Shirley Sherrod, I knew her husband. So I'm going to tell my listeners a little something about Shirley Sherrod that maybe they don't know. The reason I was so sure, and the reason I spoke out so forcefully uh, about the firing of Shirley Sherrod is because I knew her husband, Charles Sherrod. It was Charles Sherrod that came to Rock Hill, South Carolina. The first place that John, uh, John Lewis was ever physically assaulted was in Rock Hill, South Carolina. And Charles Sherrod came there to Friendship Junior College to organize what became the jail no bail movement, where people decided that they would stay in jail rather than paying the bail. 
And so when I heard that about Sheryl Sherrod, I knew something was dead wrong. And I spoke out against it. Uh, and so I, I say today that uh, it was because Brad Bach, or whatever the name was, had doctored up her speech. She gave the speech, a conciliatory speech, and an NAACP event. They took the speech, doctored up, and put it out on the media mm -hmm. to be saying exact opposite to what she was saying. And she lost her job over it. Of course, they apologized and tried to bring her back. Once they found it out, but the headlines had already gone out there. Yep. And her thing was, I was embarrassed in front of my grandchildren and I'm not coming back. So I, I put that incident out to say that what we have to do is be careful about the media and be sure that what is reported that what you see as having been reported is what really happened uh, and do that before the fact rather than after the fact. Yes. And so we're gonna be challenged going forward because there are a lot of people upset about this new administration. Uh, everybody uh, ain't feeling the same way about Kamala Harris that you and I feel. A lot of people are upset. Uh, the people of color voted in great numbers to get rid of 45. And so they're gonna be out here doing whatever they can to discredit, to drive wedges, and to do what they can to disrupt the progress uh, that we were making toward uh, a more perfect union. And so I wanna thank you uh, for the effort you put forward, not just for your own success, but for sticking to it. You, first time you lost. Uh, I, I lost three times before I got elected. This was my third. <laughs> this was the third? This, yeah, second against the, the same person, but there are three runs. My goodness. We got, we got something else in common. Uh, <laughs> because when I was asked, what, what you gonna do now? Uh, you run three times, you've lost three times, and you know what they said, three strikes and you out? I said, nobody should live their lives by baseball rules. Uh, Three right. strikes you out is a baseball rule. Uh, and so thank you uh, for sticking with it uh, because you're now or soon to be in a couple of weeks, you're gonna be a United States Congressman. Yes. Coming uh, from not having a house to live in. Yes. Uh, suffering the indignities of assault, the indignities of having to live in your automobile, the indignities uh, of being a low-wage worker, now being a nurse, a pastor, and a United States Congresswoman. <laughs> Only in America. <laughs> oh, yes. John Lewis would say that, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, and thank you for being, you know, uh, being welcoming and, and being open and, you know, and discussing, you know, your background and how we can put though my background and yours together, you know, along with everybody else's into work. Because this is a continuation, you know, of the work, 
you know, people try to say to me like, this is totally different than, you know, but no, actually it's not. Because when I tell people, you know, when we walk into a place and we protest, that if we protest on, on the inside of a place, we, you know, there was no sign up that said that we had to be at a certain part of the place. You know, if we, if we, if, you know, if we want to shut down something, oftentimes like there is no, you know, like we're able to do those things because somebody went before us and, and, and removed part of the barrier, you know, so this is a continuation of the work. And so thank you for, um, for recognizing that and seeing that we have to put both of these movements together you know, our people deserve this. Our people deserve it. And not only that, it's not about us. It's about our children's children. So that's what we're working for. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for doing this. And thank you for living out the scripture. Uh, I uh, believe in very strong, strongly James, the second chapter. You know, my favorite book of the Bible is James. Uh, not just because of my name, but you know, it's the, uh, such a short book of the Bible. Uh, you can um, uh, really uh, do it, read the whole thing in one sitting and think you've done something. Uh, but I remember when Nancy Pelosi uh, asked me uh, to chair the House Democrats Faith Working Group. Uh, because I was not a pastor, I thought maybe uh, somebody like Cleaver or John Lewis should do it, but she insisted that I should do it. And when I asked my pastor, uh, what he thought I should do. Uh, he asked me uh, to go read the book of James, uh, which I did. And uh, when I read it, I knew when I got to the second chapter what he was saying to me. But I went back to him. And I said, now, Joe, his name is Joe Darby. I said, now, I see what you're trying to tell me. I said, but let's talk a little bit about what James had in mind while he was writing this epistle. Uh, and we talked about how James, 44 years after Christ had ascended, uh, when the people of faith were trying to decide what they needed to do to demonstrate that faith, a lot of them felt that all they needed to do was a professor, that their faith was their personal relationship with the Almighty and nobody else's business. But James, Jesus' brother thought differently. And he wrote, that if your brother or sister come to you hungry and naked, it's not enough to tell them to go in faith. You feed them and you clothe them because faith without works is dead. And so you are a woman of faith. You come into a group a body, if you please, where a lot of work, good, productive work, can get done. And I will hope that when you come, that you will not only uh, attend the committee meetings that you will be assigned to, uh, but hopefully you will uh, become a part of the faith working group. Oh. We will continue the work with you. Uh, it may be at some point in the not too distant future, there's gonna to have to be another chair for the faith working group. Uh, but if you were to come a part of it, uh, then you can help us get others to understand what's important about making their faith work for everybody. Yes. So thank you, thank you. Uh, for uh, offering yourself for public service. Thank you for what I know you're going to do. 
uh, when you get here, thank you for just being uh, who and what you are. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clyburn Chronicles. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know by leaving a comment. And don't forget to subscribe to my show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Congressman Jim Clyburn. Thank you.